Turn with me, if you would, to Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 2. That's our text this morning. And as you're turning there or scrolling there, um, I'm going to pray again before we get started this morning. So pause with me. Father, we are so grateful for your word that is trustworthy and reliable, that speaks to us, that is alive and active. And I pray as we approach it this morning, we would do so humbly and gratefully that you have chosen to speak to us. You're a God who communicates, and you've done so through your Son, through your Word, your written Word here. Focus our hearts and our minds here, now, in this place, on this Word, by your Spirit's power. In Jesus' name, amen. So Philippians 4, starting in verse 2. Find your place there, please. Uh, Last week we had the opportunity to to discover the effects of standing firm together in Christ. We were able to push forward to spiritual maturity because of standing firm. We're separated from the world, and our faith is confirmed. Our heavenly citizenship is confirmed because of the standing firm together. While we discussed standing last week, uh, I tried to provide some kind of shared theme between last week and this week. We're moving into a passage this morning that discusses in many ways the next phase for Christian unity in the church, and that is working well together. And that's exactly what I've titled the sermon this morning, Working Well Together. And the text, again, is Philippians 4, starting in verse 2 and moving down through verse 7. Follow along as I read it for us this morning. I plead with Euodia, and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, Help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We're going to focus on one thing this morning. This is the big idea for our sermon this morning, and it's this. The gospel moves us beyond personal preference or circumstances to labor together for Christ The gospel moves us beyond personal preference or circumstances to labor together for Christ. So we are called to do so much more than simply stand together, what we talked about last week. We're called to run a race, to move forward. We're called to work well together. It's both a command and a description of our lives united in and through the power of Christ. Work well together. Our passage today provides two specific requirements for working well together. The first is this, and it's found in verses two and three. Working well together requires rescinding personal rights for the sake of the gospel. Working well together requires rescinding personal rights for the sake of the gospel. Uh, I think it's three weeks running uh, that I've hinted at a change in language, my pet peeve about Christian rights. Um, I'm not gonna harp on it too much here, but I will point out that Paul is doing something similar here. Uh, He's calling prominent persons in the Philippian church out uh, to understand the real risks 
of any time that we allow personal preference or uh, our personal rights to get in the way of the gospel. As well, Paul's reference to women uh, shouldn't be shocking because it fits the context of this book, of his readers. It shows a high regard for the spiritual vigor, responsibilities, and potential of women in the church. After all, women had played a prominent role in the founding of the churches in Macedonia. Uh, Remember that at the beginning of the church here in Philippi, it was Lydia who was one of the first converts, uh, a seller of purple. Uh, Also remember that a young slave girl became the first to be delivered from from an evil spirit here on European soil. So two women. Paul starts off this passage with a strong call for unity because personal preferences and and petty uh, provincialism often become the biggest barriers for the spread of the gospel to corporate unity. In light of the distinction established between the enemies of the cross and the citizens of heaven, as was mentioned last week, it's not unrealistic that Paul would then appeal again for this unity, but he does so not at the expense of truth. Uh, This isn't an unrealistic demand or hope for complete agreement on absolutely everything. Uh, Nowhere does Paul indicate this either here in Philippians or in any other writings. What is in view What Paul does have in mind, what he does appeal to, is a mental attitude that adopts the same basic direction, orientation, same fundamental aim as other believers. That is a gospel orientation. And to work well together in this way frequently requires the sacrifice of personal privileges for the sake of Christ and the unity of the community of faith. Paul identifies quite clearly as he begins with this plea for the same mind. So he uses this, I plead with Yodi, I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in verse 2. This expression means much more than to agree in areas of personal opinion. Uh, We might identify things like uh, sports teams, food, uh, school choices, employment. Uh, Those are not really what Paul's referencing here. He's referencing something much deeper. There's a fundamental orientation to all of those things that we do all of our life toward Christ alone. Uh, Christ, who is the heart of the Christian faith. This is the same appeal that Paul used in chapter 2, verse 2 of Philippians, where he says, being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. You get the sense of unity that Paul is getting after. And as was emphasized last week, there cannot be unity. We cannot stand firm together without Christ. Only Christ unites us to stand firm together, and only Christ unites us to work well together. Paul also addresses each woman in the exact same way. So the structure of the verse, uh, he uses the verb twice with each name. He didn't have to do that. He could have used the verb one time. He could have combined the names together. But what Paul is emphasizing is there's no favoritism. Paul's not favoring one side of an argument or another. What he's saying is you need to be united. You need to work well together. Also, he mentions these words, contended, co-workers. Uh, The deep commitments to the gospel found in these women, in verse 2, meant that tension was in fact a daily fact of their existence. Why do I say that? Why Why do I put it that way? Very simply, it's this. Those who follow hard after Christ live with tensions and troubles that the uncommitted heart does not know. We all know that The things in life that get under our skin the most, that bother us when they really shouldn't, where we get the most defensive and protective, the things most close to our heart, 
The gospel often calls us to move beyond these things. This is painful and challenging, but it is necessary. There's a camaraderie mentioned here by Paul, an appeal using contended co-workers. He indicates a common bond and a common goal. The challenge here is not to some uh, wishy-washy or or flaky false Christian. Uh, These women are committed. They have some skin in the game, as it were. So these women are are committed to the cause of the gospel. Thus, their their, uh, quarrel is on a, a surface level. It's not about truth. It's not about something important. It's not about the gospel. In addition, Paul says that these women, along with those of uh, his other co-workers, their names are written in the book of life. Uh, it's traditionally a title of honor used in Jewish literature uh, of pe- the people of God who suffered and endured and come through that suffering as the child of God and have nevertheless remained faithful. Also, this phrase sur- surely hearkens to our mind uh, descriptions in Revelation where we recall how the names of the saints are recorded in heaven. So the, God, the people here that Paul is referencing are believers, uh, intensely committed to the gospel, but separated at a surface level by what seem like petty problems. Paul even, doesn't even reference the problem. So he doesn't even say what the issue is, thus not even lending it the, the, the importance of being noted. This isn't the kind of fellowship the gospel fosters. It's all summed up in this way. Fundamentally, the gospel unites the faithful through a shared calling from the world, and to Christ. A shared vision to spread God's glory among the nations. Shared suffering to fill up the sufferings of Christ. That's what the scripture calls it. Participation with Christ. And a shared destination. Eternity and worship to God, unhindered by even the presence of sin. Unity. Unity. Working well together. So this begs some fundamental questions. Who do you stand with? Who do you stand against and why? Is it an essential or non-essential issue that separates you? Sometimes we share shallow commitments and beliefs, uh, and we are often united by common goals and pursuits, and that's great. That's what makes us human. Uh, And sometimes we allow those differences, though, to separate us. So just as we allow uh, common tastes and preferences to unite us so often, we allow those same things to separate us. And it overshadows our shared adoption by God. There's an appeal to unity here in our way of life much further beyond shared opinions or appetites or hobbies or goals. Um, Rather, there is a call to shared labor under the Lordship of Christ. Paul appeals here in verse 2 to like-mindedness in the Lord, to contending together in the cause of the gospel. Very specific qualifications. There's no questions about the qualifications here. Very often we allow petty disagreements to get in the way of our shared purpose in this community. And Paul addresses these women by name, indicating a particularly strong statement for them to stop quarreling. Just drop it, essentially is what he's saying. You know, there's there's this legend in my family uh, with my name. Uh, my given birth name is actually Peter Micah Anderson. Uh, yet along with my legends, and they are legends of mischief and troublemaking, my name has subsequently lengthened. Eventually, at some point, I was convinced my full name, birth name, was actually Peter Micah Daniel Leroy Anderson. It's quite a mouthful, isn't it? Uh, so 
my mother primarily was the culprit of, of extending this, my names, and I think she identified the source of my troubles with my father, because my father's full name is Daniel Leroy Anderson. Uh, surely the source of the bad genes, right? So still to this day, when my mom calls me by all five names, I mean, I'm a grown man, right? Uh, I snap to attention. I pay attention. I realize I probably need to alter what I'm doing or at least give a special attention to what my mother's saying. Uh, little did I know how Pauline my mother was in her attempts at uh, parenting or I guess her success in parenting. But sometimes when we appeal in, in name, something just needs to be dropped. Often that was the case. My mother just wanted me to stop what I was doing. And Paul is doing that here. Sometimes calling people by names, I mean, j- just stop it. Just drop it. Uh, some commentators also think these two women in verse 2 may have been sisters or somehow related familially. Uh, and, but it's interesting that Paul doesn't appeal to that. So if they were, Paul doesn't say, hey, your sisters, get, get along, which is often the case in parenting, right? Hey, you guys are brother and sister. You, you need to... What if you're the only friend that you have? You know, I mean, how often have we said that to our kids? I say that all the time. I said that yesterday, I think, when I was alone with my kids. Uh, But Paul calls one shared history to bear. And that's the shared work of the gospel in their heart. The shared work of the gospel co-laboring together for the sake of Christ. And realize God calls each of us by name. Out of sin and to redemption. He knows us. He's called us into fellowship with himself and with other Christians as well. Stand with each other. Stand together with me for the sake of the gospel. Work well together. Not only who do you stand with or against, but what do you fight for? Paul uses a a rich language of of togetherness, of cooperation, co-laborers, but he also uses this word contend. And it actually is often, most often used in Greek literature for wrestling or warfare. So quite obviously, there are battles worth fighting. There are things worth standing up for and sacrificing for the good of the community. The spread of the gospel and the cause of Christ is what we should fight for. Do you understand? Do I understand? I often forget this. Sacrifice is essential to the Christian faith. Do you actively practice sacrifice even in interpersonal relationships over small things? Paul also appeals here to an anonymous Christian in verse 3. Yes, I ask you, my true companion. No one really knows who this person is. There are lots of, there's lots of speculation because of the word that's used. Maybe it's a, a euphemism, it's some guy's name. But all in all, he, he's most likely just referring to a Christian in the community. So why does he do that? Well, sometimes we need to be peacemakers. We need to seek to be peaceful in our community. Do you earnestly seek peaceful relationships? Are you a peacemaker? You know, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, the preeminent uh, exposition of ethics in the kingdom of God, as an ethicist, an ethics student, I love the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this, the peacemakers will see God. It's a weighty promise. Paul declares our evangelism as well, our work in the world. He, he describes it as reconciliation. We are ministers of reconciliation. Does that describe you? So working well together requires first letting go of our personal rights for the sake of the gospel. 
I told you that this whole language of rights is a personal concern of mine, but also I just know how difficult it is. It's really hard to let go of things that we often use to identify ourselves, our individuality, our personality. Uh, We often draw our identity from these things. But the challenge is in this passage and constantly in our lives to remind ourselves of our new identity, our true identity in the gospel. And it imminently involves community. It involves the people here. It involves other believers. The tendency of Christians to rely on the language of rights, even when resolving a disagreement, is improper. If you want to work well together, if we want to work well together, all of us here, we must often let go of personal rights. Not only this, but Paul points to a second means of working well together. And we find this in verses 4 through 7, and that is this. Working well together requires radical faith, but brings lasting joy and peace. Working well together requires radical faith, but brings lasting joy and peace. It's interesting that Paul transitions in the text and begins this next section by couching worry, anxiety, fear in between joy and peace. It's a strange thing he does. And we also tend to think of this section and sections like this in Pauline writings as kind of a peppering of unassociated ideas, just these things that Paul's kind of, okay, I didn't mention that, I should probably write that down. Oh yeah, let's do that too. Yeah, that sounds good. Grocery list, right? But that's not what Paul's doing here. It's not random. Uh, Paul intimately connects each of the ideas in these next few verses together, and it has a, a direct connection with what has just come above. All our troubles our failures, our fears need to be situated in the dual realities of Christ-centered joy and God-given peace. Doesn't that reflect our situation? We often find ourselves troubled. We find ourselves in really challenging and stressful, worrisome situations. So fittingly, Paul begins with a call to joy. There's a doubling here in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. That's actually quite common in Jewish writing. Uh, It indicates a strong emphasis whenever it's used. And Paul's likely using this effect here in verse 4. Also, remember that Paul isn't exactly writing this letter from a place of comfort. Uh, He's not like sitting in his own home or on some plush Roman estate. He isn't uh, sipping whole leaf tea on the beach, which is my vision of comfort. He's in a Roman prison, okay? People died in Roman prisons while they were waiting to be executed. The sentence was often the execution. So again, Paul's not like writing from a place where he, oh, it's easy for you to say, Paul, rejoice, right? He's not saying that. He is uncomfortable. Yet Paul sincerely and emphatically calls for joy. Why does he do that? Philippians 2.18, Paul says this, that the Philippians should be glad and rejoice with him. Philippians 3.1, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And lastly, here, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. It seems like there aren't any loopholes or ways out of this for us. We often look for ways to squirm out. I know I do. Because Paul says rejoice in the Lord always. It's pretty inclusive, right? And this is a special kind of joy. We often misunderstand what the term for joy means. Uh, It's not some happiness or state of being determined by our circumstances. 
It's a Christian's joy that flows from faith and trust in God alone. A radical faith that supplies lasting joy because of the Redeemer who has purchased us with his blood, bought us back, and given us peace with God. Paul then makes an appeal to gentleness or reasonableness, as the ESV has it, in verse 5. A reference that I know for me, I don't know about for you, when you hear the word gentleness, it draws my attention immediately to the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. And you know, I had a hard time really understanding what gentleness, what does gentleness mean? It seems like a weak thing for a guy, right? Why should I be gentle? Uh, until I heard it explained this very simple way. Gentleness is subdued strength. Gentleness is subdued strength. So it's not that I or you or we together, we don't have the power or the ability or the so-called right to do a particular thing or for a particular thing. No, it's that there is humility, there's compassion and tenderhearted concern for someone Gentleness is a deference of individual position or prestige for the sake of what? Corporate unity. Individual sacrifice for corporate life, vitality. That kind of deference only comes from a life of radical faith in God alone. So in the context of fighting between Iodia and Syntyche, Paul's call for subdued strength Echoes a need for kind-hearted concern for others above individual and personal needs. Indeed, while the Lord is near, he uses this phrase in verse 5, could refer to the second coming. It's possible. It more likely meant to remind the, was meant to remind the Philippian reader, to remind us, that Jesus Christ is close. He is imminent, to use the theological term. His closeness should have a distinct effect on our spirit, toward one another and with one another. Jesus Christ is here. He is near. The gentleness of Christ is our example here. The one who did not grasp after personal rights, the grabbing, the language in Philippians 2, verse 6. Paul, that's Paul's example of humility. Jesus had, if anyone had rights, it was Christ, right? <laughs> he didn't grab them. He didn't snatch them. Even though he likely had the means and the authority to do so. He rescinded them. He gave them up. And that is our example. And Christ's empowering presence, it's a, it's, a, it's a good thing he is close to us and his watchful eyes because all of us need watchful eyes. We need that kind of God is watching notion, right? A little bit of fear, a healthy sense of fear of the Lord. That should empower us to, to work well together with our joint heirs of eternal life. So not only is gentleness and closeness and the nearness of Christ in these verses mentioned, but it then naturally builds to this next thought, this this anxiety. Well, what do we do with our anxiety? Well, this nearness, this closeness should grant us confidence to bring our, our deepest needs to God in prayer. The Philippians experienced the threat of persecution, as indicated by Philippians 1, 28, false teaching, as indicated in the admonitions and warnings of the beginning of of chapter 3, a call to stand firm. Why would you need to stand firm if there's not something threatening you at the beginning of this chapter, in chapter 4? So they face poverty, criticism, Roman resistance, false teachers, heretics. Those are pretty real fears. That's anxiety. There were were important members of the church named by Paul in a letter who were fighting 
and risking a, a, a larger fight to break out among the community. That's, that's pretty serious stuff. So I'm sure there were lots of people that were stressed. Can you feel the anxiety of this church? It's almost palpable. So in the face of this anxiety, what are we supposed to do? What are the Philippians supposed to do? Paul provides the Christian course of action. We must exercise radical faith evidenced in a prayerful life. We must trust in the living God in the face of all demands and desire to cut bait and run or to fight against one another, to depend on our skills or our talents, our charisma, our stamina to get things done or depend on someone else to solve the problem for us. Some other human being who's more capable, well, they'll solve the problem. They'll work it out for me. We must go to God first with what we need, not last, not as a last resort. And not in the spirit of fear or timidity or resignation, but in expectant gratitude. Paul provides a qualification with thanksgiving. Well, with what? Why, why should we be grateful? Well, quite clearly, what God has already done for us. It's a pretty miraculous and wonderful thing what he has done for us. And it's beyond my ability to understand it. It's beyond your ability to understand it. Why God has done what he has done. The root of our prayers must be thanksgiving for Christ through the gospel. In fact, every activity, everything we do must be freighted with thanksgiving. Confidence in the future is dependent on confidence in our past. And the work of Christ is in your past, it's in my past, and it should grant us the state of mind to know God will hear our prayers. And we should gratefully approach him, willingly. He is for us. Such a posture of prayer and joy, flowing from a life of radical faith, brings a state of being which all people, all nations seek. Peace. It's what Miss America wants. It's what we all want. Peace, right? World peace. In verse 7, Paul could be pointing to an inner individualistic uh, sense of peace, individual tranquility, and surely that's where a lot of peace begins, right? We have peace with God that's individual and kind of corporate, and and so there is a peace that starts within and it it spreads out, but there is a, a more timely aspect, a more contextually consistent aspect of peace that we often maybe don't realize what the way the peace of God works. And that's a peace coming from God that has the power to infuse sinful human beings with the spirit of unity together with other sinful human beings. That's pretty, that's pretty remarkable, I would say. I mean, we're all sinners. We're all pretty ornery. And yet somehow the work of, of grace in our lives allows us to work together. The peace of God will rule our hearts and minds. And only when the Prince of Peace reigns over our hearts and minds, in our community of faith, can we know real peace. The image of such peace standing guard, that's the language he uses here, will guard your hearts. It's a word often used in military settings of a night watch or of military guards, and it's striking. The life of radical faith encourages a God-given peacefulness, a general peacefulness in relationships in spite of all circumstances that would cause us alarm. So does the peace of God rule your heart? Does it rule our assembly? I mentioned the need for peacemaking. Uh, Paul mentions it in in verse 3 with this uh, 
this anonymous believer. And here we find the source of peace, Jesus Christ, the nearness of the Lord. What rules your heart? The cares and concerns, the burdens, the fatigue of this life? Or does Christ rule your heart? You know, when Rachel and I argue, Rachel, my wife, uh, for those of you who don't know her name, uh, it's funny how often we aren't really, and I ran this by here, don't worry. Uh, it's funny how often we aren't really fighting about the issue at hand. Uh, although I'm sure everyone has grown far beyond that notion uh, here. Uh, we might be fighting about what to have for dinner, what to do on the weekend. or uh, But that's not really what we're fighting about. Uh, sadly, there's something deeper more sinister, ruling my heart, ruling Rachel's heart. You know, my middle daughter, Ivy, she often gets in these moods, a general state of discontentment, crying, weeping, fussing, body on the floor. Uh, And she'll appeal to me, I just want my BB. That's her blanket, that she calls her blanket. I just want my BB. Well, why? Why Why this fight with my wife and me? Why this general state of discontentment for my my daughter? Why does she want her blanket? Well, Lydia sees the blanket as a symbol of comfort. A symbol of comfort. She identifies her passions, her disappointments, her heartaches. They rule her heart and she seeks peace. I often see Rachel as the symbol of my difficulties it's her fault that I'm having such a hard time. And so I'm just generally discontent. What is your symbol of peace and comfort? What is my symbol of peace and comfort? Hope it's not a blanket anymore. It might be. Is it money? Comfort? Sex? Your occupation? Your schooling? We all have it. I could list them on and on because we're infinitely creative in our ability to defer our affections away from Christ and do something else. It's not to say we don't have legitimate cares and concerns and worries. We all do. Uh, We have deep, sincere troubles. Yet notice how closely Paul ties prayer and peace together. Prayer, the ultimate recognition of dependence, is inexorably tied to peace the ultimate indication of dependence. Make God your source of peace. Allow God to rule your heart. Make him your symbol of comfort. Is Jesus the Lord of your hopes, your dreams? Does he provide comfort to you? Accept the peace that passes understanding because all other symbols of peace and comfort will never satisfy us as deeply as Christ will satisfy us. And allow this peace to rule your heart and unite us together here as a community of faith to work well together for the sake of the gospel. What are you anxious about? What burdens you in the deepest parts of your heart? What distracts your mind every day? You know, quite obviously, all of us are a little bit worried, I imagine, about looking for a pastor. We're sad to see Micah and Shana leave. Uh, Other families that are leaving our church, going to another church. Uh, but God speaks to us here in Rollsville today. Isn't that miraculous? 
Verse 6 states this, in every situation. I think that includes us too. Maybe it isn't the church that is, it, that is your worry. Maybe you've got enough worries of your own. You don't need to really think about the church, right? I mean, you have enough problems without the church. That's true. Maybe it's uh, broken relationships, rebellious children, a cruel employer, a bully at school or online. The list goes on and on. We all have troubles. This is your situation. This is my situation. This is our situation. And the peace of God can rule our hearts here and now. Take heart. You are God's child. And he is a father, a loving father, will we'll care for us. He will carry our burdens and grant us a special peace. 1 Peter 5, 7, one of my favorite verses, declares this. Cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. You know, the word cast, I, I love it. It's, it draws to my mind an idea of reckless abandon, just a raw emotion. I guess the visual image I have is of a sailor in a sinking ship, just throwing everything he can off of the ship desperately to try and live. Isn't that often how we feel about our troubles? Like we, we just can't go on. Our life just, we're going from one trouble to the next. You know, can I get a break? Quite literally, 1 Peter 5, 7 tells us this. Cast your anxieties on him because it is a care to him. Jesus Christ is our sympathetic high priest who deeply cares for you, for me, for all humankind. His blood declares this truth. His return affirms this truth. So we've talked this morning about how the gospel moves us beyond personal preference or circumstances to labor together for Christ. And we've observed two requirements for this work. Working well together requires rescinding personal rights for the sake of the gospel And working well together requires radical faith, but brings lasting joy and peace. Let's pray together. God, once again, we come before your presence humbly and gratefully with thanksgiving, though, as your word demands, because you have been so merciful and gracious to us already. The only thing we deserve, the only right we have is eternity in hell. Because we have earned it, we are sinful, Yet you and your abundant mercy and grace bought us back through the blood of your son who had the right, the privilege to grasp after personal rights his, his lordship, but he, he set aside himself to be our sacrifice. Thank you so much for that sacrifice. It gives us hope. It gives us joy far beyond our circumstances that would pull us down and weigh us down and and draw our hearts from you. Use your word this morning, your spirit, drawing us together as a body. May we work well together by letting go of our personal rights and by seeking a radical faith. Generate in us a radical faith so that we might have true joy and lasting peace because we ask in Jesus' name, amen.